0: Hey there, Pastor Mark here. It's our prayer that this message would encourage and equip you in your relationship with Jesus. We're able to provide this content due to the joyful generosity of our financial partners. And if you'd be willing to join that tribe and help get some sermons like this around the world, you can donate at harvestbaptist.info slash give. God bless. All right, Revelation chapter number 20. If you want to make your way there, we're going to continue our study. It's kind of little by little, verse by verse through this book of the Bible. And I want to start today uh, with telling you a little bit about Charles Perrault. If you don't know Charles Perrault, he is one of the fathers of fairy tales, that genre of literature. And in 1697, he wrote a very famous fairy tale. This was actually on the heels of several other famous fairy tales. He had first written La Petite Chaperon Rouge. And if you took French class, you know that I butchered that. I don't, I don't know exactly how to say it, but uh, we would know it as Little Red Riding Hood. Uh, shortly thereafter, he wrote uh, a fairy tale called yum which we would know as Cinderella. And then in, in 1697, he wrote this fairy tale that, More than 250 years later, was turned into an animated film by Walt Disney and Buena Vista Pictures and has gone on to be one of the most acclaimed uh, movies ever uh, produced, especially for the art that it had in it. As a matter of fact, in 2019, this film was selected for the preservation in the National Film Registry by the Library of Congress. And it was said to be, quote, Culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant. And this story, this movie, uh, tells the story of a prince fighting this evil one, this evil one who's actually a dragon. And he slays the dragon. And then, with true love's kiss, he raises his bride. And then he and his bride rule and reign the kingdom together. That movie is, some of you would know, Sleeping Beauty. And I bring Sleeping Beauty to your attention because what we read in Revelation 20 is Sleeping Beauty-esque. It is the story of a prince slaying a dragon. And this prince raises his bride and then they rule and they reign together. And we will see this over the course of several weeks as we move through this. We're gonna move slowly through this chapter. But I want you to understand this chapter and I want you to understand what it means for your life. You know, I tell you often that we need this book so that we can understand the nature and the character of God. You need to be able to see who God is, how he acts, what he thinks, but you also need this book to be able to understand in light of the nature and character of God, who are you? Who is the devil when you compare and contrast these characters? And today we get to see King Jesus, we get to see his nature, we get to see his character, but we get to see very clearly who the devil is in light of this and who we are in light of this, which I think will be very, very helpful because oftentimes we have a relatively accurate view of who God is, but then we don't see ourselves or our enemy, the devil, as we should in this text should definitely help us. So let's begin today. We only have a few verses in store. I'll get to the rest of it uh, next week. But let's begin today in verse number one with this idea of restraining. There is restraining, then there is reigning, then there is resurrecting, uh, then there is ultimately this rebellion that that is put down. But let's see the restraining, verse one. I saw an angel come down from heaven and this angel had the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon. Who's the dragon? Well, that old serpent. Well, who's the serpent? The devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season. So you see right away who's the devil? Well, it tells you the devil is uh, the serpent. He's a slippery one. He is a subtle one. You see that he's known as the devil or Satan. Satan meaning adversary. Uh, Satan would mean that he is the enemy of God and he is the enemy of God's people. You find that not just Satan is telling, but especially the name devil. Devil means accuser or slanderer. The one who's going to come at you and he is going to accuse and slander you more often than not, right? He's going to put in your head the thoughts, you're not good enough. God's done with you. You, you can't get victory over that. You can't find freedom. You said you were done last time and that was like the thousandth time. What makes you think this time's any different? Give up. You, you're, you're stuck this way. You can't change. What, you failed in too big. You're mis- You're pathetic. He's the one that puts those thoughts there and accuses you and slanders you and tries to defeat you spiritually. And by the way, this is why the Holy Spirit is so important. There's lots of reasons why the Holy Spirit's important, but this is one of them because the Holy Spirit, part of his job description is to combat those accusations, right? We have a spirit who bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, right? We are not given the spirit of fear, but we are given the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. It is the spirit's job to come alongside and to say, no, 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 no. I don't want you living in defeat. I don't want you living in guilt and shame. I don't want this turmoil of the soul for you. I want you to know that you know that you know that you are a child of God. You are a dear child. You are adopted. You can cry, dear dad, Abba, Father. God does not want you to live in this state where you are accused and accused and slandered and slandered, and you are beaten down and beaten down, and you feel like you have nothing to offer spiritually. He doesn't want you to live there, not at all, but the devil does. So he's your enemy, he is an accuser, he's a slanderer, but he also is a deceiver. What does the text tell you? That old serpent, the dragon, the devil, Satan, he is bound up for a thousand years. Why? Why? so that he would deceive the nations no more. Now understand the work of Satan. The work of Satan is a work of deception. He wants to trick, he wants to hoodwink, he wants to deceive. You find this in the very beginning. He comes as a serpent, subtle, and what does he do? He deceives. Paul would write to Timothy and say, Adam was first formed, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in transgression. He tricked her. He deceived her. How? Well, he's good at it. And you need to understand if the devil is trying to deceive, and he is, now this is talking about a time where he won't anymore, but that's not now. If he is trying to deceive, you have to have a bulldog grip on truth. How do you combat that? How do you mark the lie? How do you know if it's a lie? You gotta know the truth. You have to be able to ascertain, is this accurate? Is it close to accurate? Is it fully accurate? This is why truth matters. This is why we are constantly encouraging you to read this, right? Get in a group. Why get in a group? Well, there's fellowship. There are next steps. There's accountability. There are activities. There's prayer. But there's scripture in the group. You get to know a little bit more of your Bible. You get to get some truth. That's why we have Bible reading plans as a church and we're saying, download the Dwell app, jump on the plan with us, read it on your own time, dust your Bible off, study for yourself. Why? Because truth matters. Why does truth matter? Because the devil's trying to deceive you. This is why the lion's share of our church service is devoted to preaching what why why does pastor mark get all the time rich gets to tell a story about his dad i love that story why can't we have rich tell more stories why why does pastor mark get more press right is it because he's selfish does he like to talk what what's the deal there we want you to have the truth so the majority of the service is centered around let's open this up let's understand it let's apply it to our lives let's get some truth right Truth matters. Why? Because the devil is trying to deceive. That is his work. So you want to be saturated with this. This is what Paul told the church at Ephesus more or less. He said, hey, from now on, I don't want you to be children tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. I don't want you to be unstable. Why? Because that wind of doctrine is by the slight of men. Listen to it. It is with cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. It is cunning, it is crafty, it is deceitful. So what do I do? Speak the truth and love that you may grow up unto him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. Can I paraphrase that for you? Paul's looking at the church and he says, look, I got, a weak, I got a weak point on you. You are easily led astray and that stops today. I don't want that for you. So speak the truth. Where's the truth? It's in Christ. That's what he told him. This is the job of the church, right? The church of the living God is the pillar in the ground of truth. It is the job to propagate the truth. It is my job to rightly divide the word of truth and to try to give it to you so that you can have truth and be able to mark deceptions and lies because that is our enemy. So understand that. Understand you have an enemy and he's not to be trifled with. He walks about as a lion seeking whom he may devour. So be sober, be vigilant, Right? But this is a special moment that is telling to me. Because this is a moment where Satan is bound up. If you remember chapter 12, God already put a no trespass line on heaven and said, You're not coming up here no more. You're not accusing the brethren anymore. I'm done. And Satan went over time to earth. This is the moment where God says, No more earth for you, binds him up, seals him up arrests and jails him and says, you're not going to have access right now. But it is very interesting to me that who does the binding, who does the sealing, who shuts him up. It is the power of God when it's all said and done, but it's an angel. It's an angel. And that caught me by surprise, right? Because if you remember chapter 19, which the chapter divisions are man-made, right? We just left last week. Jesus comes, the second coming. He slays the enemies and the agents of Satan. He takes the false prophet. He takes the beast, puts them into the lake of fire. I'm expecting Jesus to keep his work up, but this is one that he delegates. He delegates it. Now you tell me if I'm wrong. If you're a a business owner, you're a leader in your organization, you're a manager, what do you delegate You may delegate some highly important things. It's hard to do that, but you may. But you almost never delegate something that is highly important and you think you are the one that needs to get it done. It's really your job. I just don't think that they can come close to doing it as good as I can. If it's highly important and you think you really need your bandwidth and your power and your energy to get it done, you don't delegate that, right? This is the binding of Satan, which highly important it is. But something that only Jesus can get done, it is not. Which starts to tell me a little bit more about Satan. Don't get the idea that the devil is on the level of Jesus. Ain't the case. He takes an angel, and we, a nameless angel, not even an archangel, best we know. He's like, yo, take care of my light work, right? Go take the devil and bind it. And I'm not trying to, to belittle the devil or make it seem like he's, he's nothing, but in Jesus' eyes, he is a nothing burger, right? This, this, it's not like the devil and Jesus are in an arm wrestling match and it is back and forth and they are just really giving it all that they have and barely at the end, Jesus ekes out a victory. That's not the case. This starts to help you see that in the pecking order, the devil's more powerful than you are. Get that straight. But you got to go up the ladder a lot of rungs before you get anywhere close to the neighborhood of King Jesus, right? And he delegates this out. He says, bind Satan, put him away. And this shows us the power. It shows us how strong and big our king is, which has kind of been a mega theme of chapter 19 and chapter 20, right? Remember when there was this big war waging and the antichrist is a, amassing the armies of the earth and they're going to fight and what does Jesus do like pregame? Remember he has a feast. Marriage supper of the lamb. Come on, let's kick it, you know? Let's just relax, let's just eat, let's have a good time. And they had a big meal pregame. Why? Cuz there's no butterflies in his stomach. He's not worried about what's going to happen, which way is the battle going to break. I don't know. It's going to be really tough. It's going to take all my power. No. And what happens when he comes in power? That, that victory is summarized in one verse. It's like he spoke it with, his, with the words. just, boom, it's done. And he's like the devil, angel, hey, take care of him for me. Would you take the chain, bind him, put him away in the bottomless pit, which is the, the abode or the jail cell of malevolent spirits. Lock them away for a while, for a thousand years. It tells you about the power of who Jesus is. But then you see after Satan is restrained, then we get to reign. Look at verse number four. Yeah, Satan's bound, but the saints are blessed because I saw thrones. And they sat upon them and judgment was given unto them. Now stop right there for a minute. Thrones, plural, not singular. They, them, plural, right? This, this isn't, you know, one person suffering from gender dysphoria and saying they, them. It's still plural, right? So this is not talking about God's throne. This is not talking about Jesus sitting and reigning. It's the thrones and they, them are sitting and reigning and I saw the soul's of them which were beheaded for the witness of Jesus. We've seen this through Revelation, these tribulation saints. And for the word of God, which had not worshiped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they they lived. Now I don't know if that surprised you or not, but generally when a beheaded person lives, that's surprising. They lived and they reigned with Christ a thousand years. How'd that happen, right? How'd you get your head chopped off and you live? Well, the resurrection happened. And if you read verses five and verses six, it will tell you plain Jane flat out, this is a resurrection. This is what's happening. What is this talking about? They're ruling and reigning with Christ a thousand years. It's talking about the reign of the saints. Here's the chronology. Let's review Jesus comes, he thwarts the enemy, he takes care of the beast and the false prophet, then he takes care of Satan, the beast and false prophet are permanent, Satan is temporary for a thousand years, he establishes his kingdom, and we get to rule and reign with him. You say, establish his kingdom, help me out. Well, you ever pray the Lord's Prayer? Raise of hands, how many of you have a Catholic or a Lutheran upbringing? Catholic or Lutheran upbringing, raise of hands. Okay, big sprinkling. Many of us would have prayed this, but if you have that background, you're probably more prone to pray the quote-unquote Our Father or the model prayer or the disciples' prayer. It goes by lots of names, but Matthew 6, where Jesus teaches his disciples to pray. Pray after this manner. Our Father, which art in heaven... Hallowed be thy name. I saw something recently where someone said, I know God's name, it's Howard. They said, how do you know? Our Father which art in heaven, Howard be thy name. I said, no, it's not Howard, it's Hallowed, sanctify your name. <laughs> Hallowed be thy name. What are the next three words? The next three words are a full sentence. Thy kingdom come. What do we mean thy kingdom come? We mean this kingdom come. What do you mean this kingdom come? Well, you got to know a little something about it. And to be completely brutally honest with you, many Christians have like almost to no concept of this. Some of this has to do with different uh, theological perspectives and some people not being taught it, but sometimes it's just obliviousness. The people have a, a... perception of the church and what the church should be. And they have a perception of maybe what eternity should be. And even that's a little skewed oftentimes, but this, this kingdom, this thousand years where Satan is bound and and we're ruling and reigning, like most people have no idea what we're talking about. So I got to give you a little bit of information. And then from that information, we can start to do formation. Okay. So let me give you a little bit of information. There's, there's a lot I could pour out here, but I'll, I'll try to make it quick, but you're gonna have to hang with me, okay? Don't, don't fall asleep on me. I know it's rainy and dreary and dark outside, but save your yawns and hang with me. There's a lot of history in the Jewish people, but let's just fast forward all the way to like Samuel, the prophet. The people come to Samuel, they're established, they're in the promised land. God is their leader, they are a theophany. And they say, Yo, Samuel. We, I don't know if they said yo or not. I put that in there. But Samuel, we want a human king. And Samuel gets in the tizzy about it. He's he's really, his feelings are hurt. And he goes to God and he's like, am I doing a bad job? And he kind of was sort of a little bit. But God comes to Samuel and says, Samuel, they haven't rejected you, buddy. They're rejecting me. Give them what they want. See how it goes. So they get King Saul. He's hit or miss. He's real hot and cold then they get David. David is good, but David's a mess, you know. There's some rough moments in David's reign. Then they get Solomon. Solomon ushers in the golden era, but even Solomon has some real chinks in his armor. But then after Solomon, I mean, after three kings, it goes off the rails fast. I mean, it is downhill. Downhill. They start to fight. There's civil war, more or less. The kingdom breaks into two different sections. They don't like each other. And there's bad king after bad king. And I mean, it is just a mess. Nobody's living for God. Nobody wants God. Nobody wants to serve him. They've forgotten the commandments. I mean, there's there's this whole mess. And eventually, hundreds of years later, this prophet by the name of Isaiah, you may have heard of him. He steps onto the scene and Isaiah tells them, Bad news, good news. Bad news, God's about to spank you. He's not going to let this go unnoticed. He's going to send Babylon, and they're going to conquer you, and they're going to they're take your peace. They're going to take your stuff. It's, it's going to be really, really, really hard, and he's going to do that. And then other prophets prophesying there's wave after wave of this. But Isaiah looks beyond the dark cloud into the sunshine. And you know what Isaiah tells them? He says, eventually, eventually you will have a Messiah through the line of David. And this Messiah will come and he will rule and reign, not just you, but he will rule and reign over the whole earth. And when his kingdom comes, it'll be something like you've always hoped for, but you've never seen. It'll be like what you, what you think could happen when you elect that politician and you get the new leader or you start the new community or the new business where you think it could be really good and you see how it could be that you, utopian state more or less like it'll come one day through the Messiah. And Isaiah begins to write about this kingdom and Then the other prophets begin to write about this kingdom and they begin to say things like this, that when when he reigns, all the other kingdoms will be done away with. You can make a note and read Daniel 2 if you want to, where he comes and supplants all of them. It's worldwide. And Isaiah begins to say, when he reigns, peace will be pervasive. And you start to get these prophecies that you may have heard of before, where he says, for example, in Isaiah 11, the wolf will lay with the lamb. And as a kid who read White Fang like 18 times in elementary school, I always loved this verse. I was like, I can have a pet wolf. Like that would be awesome. Yeah. Yeah. The leopard will lie down with the kid, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together and a little child shall lead them. What is he trying to say? He, in picturesque language, he's trying to say, this will be, if we lost the Garden of Eden in Genesis, we're, we're kind of getting it back in, in Revelation 20, that he's going to make this kingdom, and peace will be pervasive, and the, the, the natural order, the animal kingdom, even the, the human kingdoms, they will all be what we feel they could have been, that when the trees creak and the wolves howl, and we think, like, is this the way it has to be? Now there's going to be something different. He'll bring in this kingdom. He says in Isaiah 2 that when he comes and judges the nations and rebukes, which is how the kingdom starts, then they shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Ever hear that, the, the old spiritual down by the riverside? I ain't gonna study war no more. Where does that come from? That comes from prophecies about the kingdom. That all the accoutrements of war are turned into utensils to be used to further civilization and to cultivate, not to hurt and to to be against each other, but to, to be something beautiful and harmonious, this peace. And then when you read the prophecies, you see that oppression begins to cease and injustice is gone because there's a righteous, faithful judge and king and disease and sickness are almost all but ended, and and there's this new order, this new kingdom, and somehow deep down, I think we know this. I've told you this before, but we long for this. Like, our legends are made up of this stuff, that there was a king who, when he was in charge, it was beautiful, and it was harmonious, and things flourished, but he's gone, and now it's unraveling, but he's gonna come back, right? Robin Hood. When Richard the Lionheart was here, it was great. England was at its peak. But now that he's gone, I gotta rob from the rich to feed the poor because everyone's out for themselves. But we look forward to Richard the Lionheart being back and reigning, right? Arthur and Camelot. When Arthur ruled, Camelot it was beautiful. But there's a tombstone. Here lies Arthur are once, and the tombstone says, coming king. Lord of the Rings, like all, all these stories have this prince of the north who's gonna come and he will put it all back together again, right? Where, where do we get these ideas? Where do we, what does this stir up in us? What, what is it that, that rings the bell for us when we hear this? Well, it's true. It tips our hat to the reality of what, what is coming, that it was good, but it's been ruined, and the king is gone, but the king is coming again, and he will institute his kingdom. Now, I know that's a lot of information, but let's start to do some formation. And literally, I could spend a month with you just on the implications of this, but I'm just gonna give you a couple. I'll give you two this morning, and we'll leave it at that. What does it mean if this is true, and it is? Well, there is a King of Kings and Lord of Lords who rules and reigns, and that King of Kings and Lord of Lords is Jesus. That means that my Savior and my Redeemer, and my, as we're saying this morning, Messiah, my friend, is also a King. Now, I don't know if you've ever been friends with someone who's powerful. I don't think I ever really have personally someone who really had a lot of human power even. I've never been friend with a dignitary, some sort of czar or king. I'd like to be though. People spend a lot of their life jockeying to get close to and in proximity of and the orbit of a king. Why? Because there's, there are perks that come with being close to a king, Right? There are perks to having a cousin who's a congressman because they can maybe lobby for whatever you want in your business interests. They would never do that. Yes, they would. But here's a king who's your savior and your redeemer and your friend, but a king. And not a human king that if you get close to, you're worried about if he's gonna be threatened by you and, and put you in jail or chop your head off. A loving king who wants the best for you. And I think that John Newton summed it up so beautifully, the guy who wrote Amazing Grace, when he said in his poem, if thou art coming to a king, then large petitions with you bring. If his grace and mercy and power are such, then you can never, ever ask too much. Think about that. You know what Newton said? If Jesus is that king, then why is my faith so small? If he's a king and I have a relationship with him, why am I asking so little? Why am I playing it so safe? Why am I not trusting more? Why am I not asking for more? Right? That is a great thought. I'm for you praying for all the little things in your life because God cares. He really does. Pray for your meeting that's happening at work this week where they will do your evaluation and determine, you know, what's happening in the next six months. Pray for that. Pray for traveling safety as you go to your beach house this week at an Outer Banks and celebrate the 4th of July. Sure, pray for those things, but please don't leave it there. I'm not trying to belittle those things, but maybe have a faith that's a, a bit larger than that. Maybe trust him for more. Maybe act like he literally is a king and that you can bring him anything, and if he has this power and this authority and and all of this at his disposal, then how could we have so small a faith? Newton thinks it out. He says, it makes no sense to me if we have a king that we should just play it safe and be guilty of small thinking. It shouldn't be. But if he's a king and... You're going to rule and reign in his kingdom, a kingdom that is marked by peace, a kingdom that is marked by righteousness and fair judgment, and you are going to be entrusted with some of that. First of all, let that excite you about your future, because I keep telling you through Revelation that those of you that think of your future in God, like, I'm in the grave, Many times people don't even think about a resurrection that awaits them that does. And they think of eternity as this bodiless experience where like Casper is your cousin and you live next door to each other and float around in the sky. That's not true. But then if if you get past that, then you just start to think that like maybe it will be a sing-along forever. I told you in chapter 19, it's more than a praise session. There's a feast that's involved. But now you see this. You know what you see? We rule and we reign with him, meaning there's a job and a job description and things to do and activities that happen, as Paul would write, judging that will take place. Like It will be our job to help be the keepers of the peace in the kingdom and rule and reign with him, right? That's kind of cool. And you know what the Bible says? I'm not making up this implication because I couldn't have made it up or thought of it myself if I tried. But you know what the Bible says the implication of that is? If that's true, here's what it says. I'm summarizing. You better have relationships that are healthy and marked by wisdom. You say, where does it say that? I'm glad you asked. 1 Corinthians 6. I'm not going to read it to you. You can make a note to read the first eight verses of 1 Corinthians 6 if you want. But the Corinthian church, they're fighting. These believers are locking horns with each other. And Paul comes to them and says, This shouldn't be. And you know the line of logic he uses? He says, If you're gonna rule, if you're gonna reign, if you're gonna judge, if your future is that kingdom and ruling and reigning with God, trying to be a keeper of the peace and ruling and reigning in that peaceful kingdom. Wouldn't it make sense that your relationships would be marked by peace now? And the logic is beautiful. Like if that's your future, wouldn't you start to implement that and do it now? If that's your job description then, wouldn't you start to prepare for that job description now? Which is completely logical. Like if your future is, I'm gonna graduate from college and be an accountant. Guess what? You should take some accounting classes. It saves the reason, Right? I see myself working as a chef. Well, then go to culinary school. Right? We get this. It just makes sense. And what Paul says, if you really believe that your future is ruling and reigning in the kingdom and a kingdom where peace is to be pervasive, then you had better get good at keeping the peace now. And when I look at your relationships, I don't see it. You know what he told him? He said, I see you fighting. I see you suing each other. I see you needing non-Christian mediators to step in and to figure out the squabble that the two Christians have. He said, it does not make sense to me how you could do this when you should be living peaceably with all men, as much as lies within you, live peaceably with all men. And he thinks it out and he says what it means if you're going to rule and reign in the kingdom where peace is pervasive, that means that you better have relationships right here, right now that are healthy, that are peaceful, that are harmonious, and that are marked by wisdom. And he's right. I am your pastor, and it's sometimes it's my job to tell you the tough things, and I do it because I love you. But if you look back at the past 10 weeks, 10 months, or 10 years, and there's like a graveyard of relationships behind you, and people are like the speed bumps that you just keep driving over, over, and over, and over again, or some of you know, you know like, you don't like to admit it to you, but look back. If you got 10 years of bad relationships, it's you. I'm sorry, it's you. It's not your grandma and your grandpa and your mom and your sibling and your neighbor and your coworker and, and, it's you. There's a problem. Like you're bulldozing your way through life and it's not supposed to be. You are supposed to have relationships that that are healthy. And I understand that it takes two to tangle in a relationship and sometimes you can't bring the other party to the table. But even if they won't get to the table and even if they do want to poke the bear and if they do want to make it really difficult on you and you got a bad boss, even then you should have character that is exemplified to them that is Christian in nature that is peaceable. And as much as lies in you, you should live peaceably with them. You should work it out. Don't blame them. Understand, even for a Christian, with a non-Christian, that should be the case. But especially, and this is where I want to hit it, Christian to Christian, that should especially be the case. It, it baffles me, number one, because I've never really been a part of it. I've been a part of multiple churches. I grew up in Kentucky and my whole life was part of the same church. I went to Bible college in Arkansas, spent four years at that church. I went and got a master's degree in Southern California and spent a year at that church. Went to Northern California, worked there, five years at that church, and now here for eight, okay? I've never been a part of a church that was marked by uh, discord and unhealthy relationships. So I, 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 it doesn't make sense to me that a church would be that because I've never experienced it personally. And I'm glad for that. But more than that, it doesn't make sense to me that a church would be the place where people fight with each other often because I've read my Bible. Like if I read it right, the number one place where relationships should be able to flourish would be within the context of a church. There should be no richer soil for relationships than right here. This should be the place where people come in and they're like, I've just never seen love quite like this and it's really appealing. Like it's, it's kind of infectious. Like, I like this. It should be the place where fellowship and, and and having fun and learning together and challenging each other even, where all of those things can happen in a way that is so beautiful. And I'm not saying that we would be perfect and we would never annoy each other and we would never have to forgive each other, but we would have the resources in Jesus that when those moments come to be able to put up with them or to be able to forgive them or be able to go the second mile and bear their burden, that we would be able to do that where my workplace, like, my coworkers can't do that. And the people in my neighborhood don't really have the resources to do that. But you should be surrounded by a bunch of people that have the resources to do that. And it should be beautiful in our relationships. And I'll be honest, I think we're good at this. Do I think we could be better? Absolutely. I'm not trying to say that we're, that we're terrible, and we're a mess. And I know of all these squabbles and all this bickering and you guys just fight all this. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying let's not let it ever be that way. Like let's love each other. Let's love Jesus first, but then let's love each other. Let's help each other. Let's forgive each other if if we need to. Let's be humble enough to ask for it if we need to. Let's understand that if we are meant to have a job description of peacekeeping and ruling and reigning where we would judge with wisdom and with righteousness and with peace as the goal, that that should be us today, right? And here's, here's what it comes down to. A lot of Christians have to decide between, am I living, as one pastor said, culture up or kingdom down? Because you ain't getting this from the culture. You're not getting this from the music. Find me a song that's just like, let's, Everyone be peaceable. You could get a couple of them, but they are the exception, not the rule. Go on social media right now. Put anything out there that has any version of uh, an opinion and see if it's just not the most cantankerous, ugly, nasty, filled with vitriol, people spewing stuff left and right. That is so commonplace for people to war with each other in our culture. To draw the lines and take out their swords and chop some heads off. That's culture up. Don't live that way. Live kingdom down. What kingdom? That kingdom. Right? If you're headed there, pack the suitcase today to go there. Pack it with peace. Pack it with righteousness. Pack it with wisdom. Pack it with love. Because it's meant to be. So let me recap. I'm done. I don't know what rings the bell exactly. Perhaps you're someone that you're like, Satan slanders me and he beats me up left and right. And I'm praying for you that the spirit of God would speak louder into your heart that you are a dear child than some evil spirit telling you that you're broken, that you're nothing, that you can't get victory. I hope that his voice wins out and I'm praying for that. Perhaps you're someone that you need to understand who Jesus is in a greater, grander way and just how much authority he has. Perhaps you're the one that needs to understand if Jesus is king, I better not have little faith. If I'm gonna rule and reign, I better have relationships that are peaceable today.